Would you pray with me? Uh, Father, we believe that life is found in you. Uh, You sent Jesus just not to improve life, uh, but to give life. And so this morning, we thank you for the life that is ours uh, in him. My church family, I want to encourage you, if you would, at this time, just to take a moment and you pray uh, for you. Uh, You know you better than I know you. You know what you uh, bring this morning, your uh, thoughts and feelings, your fears, your worry, your anxiety, your joys. I just invite you to take a moment this morning and spend some time praying for you. Uh, And if you would be so kind, would you uh, please take a moment and pray for me that my words this morning might be helpful to you Uh, as you walk with Jesus and as he changes you uh, to look and to reflect and to think and to act uh, more like uh, him. God, thank you for your living and active word. Thank you that you still use it uh, to change hearts and lives. I pray that this morning that your word would uh, convict us and would encourage us and would challenge us as we consider these words from uh, the book of James. Uh, Lord, we pray expectantly, uh, asking you to do great things for your namesake. We ask these things in Jesus' name and by your spirit. Amen. You may have a seat. Uh, it was a Sunday afternoon following the service. Uh, I was over at the church house over there in a meeting when my phone dinged, it buzzed, it indicated to me that someone was sending me a text message, and so I looked down, and sure enough, I saw the name Melissa. Melissa is my bride, of course, and so I thought I probably should take a look at this. Melissa had sent me the following picture. It is a picture from our kitchen. I don't know if you can see it from your view, but there is a large puddle on the kitchen floor. No bueno. When I saw the picture, I thought to myself, well, that doesn't belong there. And then I thought, I wonder what actually uh, caused the puddle of water to be on the kitchen floor. I thought maybe, just maybe, uh, someone had spilled a cup of water. Have you ever spilled a cup of water before? I have. You know, maybe one of the kids were fooling around, running through the kitchen, and they, they spilled some water on the floor. I thought that, you know, that's an option. Uh, another option would be uh, we have a family pet. No explanation needed. I thought to myself, well, maybe a couple of rogue ice cubes fell out of the ice maker and someone didn't pick them up and a little puddle of water, but I thought it was too big for that. I, I had a, a brief thought that maybe Olaf came over, the snowman from Frozen, and our house is a little warmer than 32 degrees. Perhaps he melted onto the kitchen floor. Or I was reminded that there is a bathroom strategically located uh, right above the kitchen. And in that bathroom is a, is a tub and a shower, uh, a sink, a, uh, a toilet, <laughs> or as we like to say, a commode. 
And I thought maybe, uh, just maybe, uh, we've sprung a leak. I don't know if this has ever happened to you before. I always say I'm not the handiest guy in the world, but at that moment I thought we need to do a few things. Uh, one, the mess on the kitchen floor needs to be cleaned up. We need to, to dry the puddle of water. I thought to myself, more than likely, we will either need to replace the drywall on the ceiling or at least paint it uh, to cover up the spots from the water stains. But even more important than that, I thought to myself, (laughs) we sort of need to find the source of the leak. Because if we don't fix that, then nothing else is going to matter. James, the half-brother of Jesus, Uh, writes to the church and says to them, uh, there are some puddles on the floor and we need to address them. But James doesn't only point out the puddle. uh, He talks about the source of the leak. Why is it uh, that they are on the kitchen floor? And so today we're going to point out the puddles in the church And we're going to look to see if we can find the source of the leak. If you have your Bibles, please turn with me to James uh, chapter 4, beginning in verse 1. James chapter 4, beginning in verse 1. James writes to the church and says, What causes quarrels and what causes fights among you? Is it not this, that your passions are at war within you? You desire and do not have... So you murder, you covet and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. You do not have because you do not ask. You ask and do not receive because you ask wrongly uh, to spend it on your passions. James continues, you adulterous people, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Or do you suppose it is to no purpose that the Scripture says he yearns jealously over the spirit that he has made to dwell in us? James writes and says to the church that there is a leak in the household of God. There is a puddle on the floor. What is the issue? Well, James uh, tells us there are quarrels and fights in the church. I know it's it's hard to believe, but apparently, uh, even back in the day, uh, folks didn't always see eye to eye in the church. I know, (laughs) it's crazy to think about, but it's been happening apparently for quite some time. Uh, the word quarrels here can also be translated war. Right? There are wars and there are fights in the church. A story is told of two toddlers who were fighting with each other. The mom came over and asked her daughter, what are you doing? And her daughter replied, we're playing church. I'm sure you've heard stories before of church folk fighting. Maybe you've heard of stories of people fighting over worship or fighting over ministry philosophy or fighting over decisions or direction or fighting over the color of the carpet. 
we took that one off the table. Uh, churches can make a UFC event look like a Barnes & Noble book reading night or a night out at the symphony. Um, that's the issue within the church. It's one of the puddles uh, that James is going to identify. But what is the, what is the cause of it? I mean, why do church folk fight and quarrel? Why do they wage war against one another? What is the root cause? James points it out. He says, what causes quarrels and what causes fights among you? Is it not this, that your passions are at war within you? The root cause of war and fights within the church is that we, we, have a passion problem. We have a passion problem. James poses a rhetorical question, what causes quarrels, what causes fights among you? And he answers that question with another rhetorical question. He says, is it not this, that your passions are at war within you? That this is the answer, this is the root problem of fights within the church. The, the one word that stands out in this passage is the word desire. Your, your desire or your passions, as it's translated in the ESV, a wage war. The, the word here for desire or passion is the same root word that we get our English word, hedonism. It, it's the idea of our, our desires, our longings, our passions, the things that we chase after. You want something, I want something that I don't have, and it drives you or me mad. We, we feel slighted. We feel wrong. We feel ignored. Maybe we feel misunderstood. But, but there are desires that we have within us. And this is true of all of us. All of us have desires. Desires, by the way, in and of themselves are not, are not wrong. They're not sinful necessarily. I mean, we all have desires. We have wants. There's things that we long for. There's things that we chase after. But the problem is oftentimes we want the wrong things for the wrong reason. Or maybe we want something that seems right, but we want it for the wrong reasons. The only other use of this word in the New Testament is in just a few places, in three other places. One is in Luke chapter 8, verse 14, where Jesus describes um, those who fall amongst the thorns is choked by life's pleasures or life's desires. In Titus chapter 3, verse 3, it refers to people enslaved by all kinds of passions and pleasures. In Second Peter chapter 2, verse 13, Peter describes uh, false teachers as blots and blemishes reveling in their pleasures. So James writes to the church and says that the reason that you fight and that you quarrel with one another primarily uh, is because you have misplaced desires or passions. It's not simply just a, a longing for pleasure per se, but it's something that you want from someone else and you're not getting it in your tick. Our desires um, drive our decisions. Our desires, all of us have them, 
oftentimes they're misplaced. And those misplaced desires drive our decisions. We do what we want to do because we want to do it. This is true of all the decisions that we make in life. How many times have you thought to yourself in life, boy, I don't, money is tight. Like, I, I don't, money's tight. Right? It's hard to come by. And then you go out and you make a purchase. You're online, you see something you want, or you go shopping, something's on sale. And moments ago, you're like, boy, times, times are tough, finances are tight, and then you go buy something. Why? Because you want it. Or you think to yourself, boy, my schedule is slammed. Like I, have, I have no time to do anything that I want to do. And so what do you do? You watch a football game for three and a half hours. You go golfing. For five hours, you binge watch on Netflix for half the day. <laughs> Why? Because you want to. You want to. Our, our desires uh, drive our decisions, and our decisions determine who we become. All of us have desires. Oftentimes, those desires are misplaced. Um, our desires drive our decisions, and our decisions determine who we become. Our decisions in life have a compounding effect. We start to layer our decisions one after the other, and it impacts the people that we become. Uh, If you skipped your devotional time with the Lord on Thursday, more than likely you're not going to turn into a monster on Friday. You're not going to turn into a pumpkin at midnight on Saturday night. (laughs) It's okay. Uh, but, but if your devotional life, if your time with the Lord is lacking over 30 years, you're going to be spiritually malnourished. Spiritually, you're going to starve yourself. Because our decisions determine the kind of people that we become. And maybe it seems like a stretch to think that our passions, our desires, are the root cause of arguments. Maybe it just seems like the reason that we argue is because he's wrong and he can't see it. Or she's wrong and she can't see it. The problem is him or her. And James says, no, like, it's us. It's these desires that we have within us. And then James is going to point out the impact that these desires have on the decisions that we make in the life that we live. Look at verse 2. You desire and you do not have, so you murder. You covet and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. You do not have because you do not ask. You ask and do not receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your passion. So James points out four leaks, four puddles on the kitchen floor. Did you notice the first one? You do not have, so you murder. You do not have, so you murder. It's unknown if this was an actual situation that took place in the church or whether James is speaking generally to the church and simply suggesting that this is the worst case scenario. Uh, regardless, this is needless to say, serious. There's, there's someone who's so uh, frustrated that they don't have what they want that literally removing someone from the planet is an option for them. Most of us, most of us, probably don't play this scenario out. There may be times when you want something that you don't have. Maybe it's 
a friend's car or home, a power tool, a new, a new phone, a new pair of jeans, something big or something small. We may be a little frustrated that we don't have it, but I would think most of us would not plot and plan on taking someone out. And yet James is saying that this can happen. This is the worst case scenario. And then he hits closer to home. He points out leak number two. You covet and you do not have, so you fight and quarrel. Uh, to want or to literally lust some, for something that you don't get, you kill out of frustration. Or James says you covet, which literally means to hotly desire Man, I want that. And you don't get it, and so you fight and you quarrel. Sometimes when we think about things that we covet, oftentimes we think of tangible things. Like, you know, someone has something that we want, a nicer fill-in-the-blank. But it's not always that. Sometimes we can covet respect from someone else. Sometimes we can covet someone's personal opinion about us. We're disappointed as they don't view us the way that we want to be viewed. They don't think of us the way that we want to be thought of. And, and so we covet a certain perception in the court of public opinion. Whatever, whatever scenario, James says, you covet and you do not have, and so you fight and you quarrel. I want something, I don't have it, and so I lash out in anger. Leak number three, you do not have because you do not ask. Admittedly, many times when I read this verse, I thought of it as an encouragement to ask God for stuff. I mean, I, like I put a spiritual spin on it. I was like, there's, you know, I, you know God's not a genie in a bottle. This is not like three wishes. I'm not going to give him my Amazon wish list and go, okay, okay, Lord. <laughs> Two-day shipping, just send it to my front door. I, I knew enough not to do that, but I thought it was primarily an encouragement or a call to just like give God your desires, to ask and listen. We, we can give God our desires. We can ask of the Lord. But, but James here is writing this, I don't, I don't think as an encouragement so much to ask God for what you want, but as a rebuke to the church because, because they don't ask God for anything. In other words, the church, the people of God, are living prayerless lives. And to not pray... To not pray is prideful and arrogant. It's functionally saying to God, listen, man, I've got it. I don't, I don't need you. I can figure this out on my own. You do your thing and leave me alone and I'll figure out life. But we can't figure out life. Like we're not independent. We're not strong enough, smart enough, talented enough or gifted enough to do life on our own terms. So, so prayer is this humble act of submission where we go before the Lord and we simply say, God, help. But James writes to the church and says, you're not even willing to ask God. Like you don't even pray. Leak number four, you ask, and you don't receive because you ask wrongly. You, you ask for the wrong reasons or for the wrong purposes. A story is told of uh, John Ward, a member of the British Parliament, 
Uh, when he passed away, a prayer was found among his papers. This is what it read. O Lord, thou knowest that I have mine estates in the city of London, and likewise that I have lately purchased an estate in the county of Essex. I beseech thee to preserve the two counties of Middlesex and Essex from fire and earthquake. And as I have a mortgage in Hertfordshire, I beg of thee likewise to have an eye of compassion on that county. As for the rest of the counties, thou mayest deal with them as thou art pleased. Like, who does that and actually writes it down so that it's found by future generations? It would be like me going like, Lord, bless the housing prices in Concord. <laughs> Do as you wish with Canapolis, but, but I'm in Concord. It would be like, Lord, I, I know that, that gas prices have been on the rise recently, but I have some stock in Exxon. And so if you could inch barrels of oil up to a buck twenty-five, that would help me out. Lord, I know the market's taken a hit, but you also know that I've invested in Apple, Amazon, and Microsoft. And so if you could give them a good earning report, that would make my heart happy. Meta, I don't care about them. Do as you wish, Lord. Like, who, who does that? James says, he writes to the church and he says, you ask, but you ask for all the wrong reasons. You ask to advance your cause. You ask to make a name for yourself. You, you ask so your life is improved with little care or concern for those around you. You don't pray and ask for kingdom advancement. You don't ask God's name to be seen as great. You, you don't ask for God. You just ask from God. And so James rebukes the church. He leans in. He says in verse 4, You adulterous people, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. When Scripture talks about the world, it can refer to a number of different things. It can refer to you know, planet Earth, this world that uh, we live in. Sometimes it refers to humanity or to people. But, but the way that James uses it here and the way that it's used in other places in Scripture, it doesn't refer to a planet or people as much as it does to a, to a system that's prevalent in a secular society. Author Dallas Willard defined the world like this. Our cultural and social practices that are under the control of Satan and thus opposed to God. Another theologian defined it like this, The world is Satan's domain where his authority and his values reign, though his deception makes that hard to realize. If you are of the world, then it all seems right. right the world in Scripture is what happens when people give in to sin and to the flesh and to their desires, whatever their desires are, they are normalized in a society. You experience the world when you find yourself, when I find myself saying things like, well, I mean, everybody does it. Like, everybody does it. We say things like, boys will be boys. And those are just the boys. Those are just the guys. 
We're saying things like, well, it's just the world that we live in. We experience the world uh, in such a way that when we confront something that is unbiblical, we just perceive it to be okay because it's socially acceptable. Maybe we find ourselves criticizing a biblical ethic of a previous generation as something that is out of date and out of touch with the world that we live in. Author Theo Hobson in his book Reinventing Liberal Christianity sums up three marks of the modern moral revolution. He writes, What was universally condemned is now celebrated. What was universally celebrated is now condemned. Those who refuse to celebrate are condemned. Now that's the world. That's what James is talking about here. James writes to the church and says to them, you are an unfaithful people. And don't you know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? James is is arguing, and he has been arguing in this book, that there is this, this biblical ethic, this way of life that God has called the people of God to. He's been doing that, I mean, all throughout the book. He's not, he's not calling the people to some legalistic way of life. He's not writing to them and, and pouring upon them law, asking them to jump through spiritual hoops, trying to earn something from God. James is not doing that. But, but he is arguing that there is a way of life for the people of God that we are to pursue. And and these people are not, and so he calls them out for it. James is not calling them, by the way, to withdraw from the world. Sometimes even within the church or Christians can talk about the quote-unquote world in such a way where we want to distance ourselves from the world, where where we want to um, create these safe bubbles where we're not affected by outside voices. Right? We, we keep everyone and everything at arm's length because we go, well, that's the world. But that also is not the way of Jesus. Right? When Jesus prayed in his high priestly prayer in John 17, he prayed to the Father, I do not ask that you, God, take them, you, out of the world, but that you keep them from the evil one. They are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. Sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. As you sent me into the world, so I have sent them into the world. But the church is an advancing organism. Like we are to press in to the world, but we're not to become like the world. We're to be difference makers in the world. We're, we're not to create these, these safe little bubbles where we're not affected by anyone or anything. Because we surround ourselves with, with people who are safe. No, we're, we're advancing units. Like we go out into the world, but we don't become like the world. Again, this is what James has been arguing all along. He's arguing for a biblical ethic, a way of life that is different and unique. James writes earlier in the book and says, don't just be hearers of the word, be doers. He says, listen, church, don't show favoritism. Don't, don't find people who are rich and influential and well-connected and buddy up with them at the cost of pushing others aside. Listen, church family, watch 
your tongue, bite your tongue, hold your tongue. Be careful with the words that you speak. James is, is arguing this is how you behave as the people of God. And this was not the case for this church. And so, so James speaks words of, of truth to them. And he, he lays it out even though it's difficult for them to hear. And he doesn't hold back. James continues in verse 5 and says, Or do you suppose it is to no purpose that Scripture says he yearns jealously over the Spirit that he has made to dwell in us? So James has identified the puddles. He pointed out the source of the issue, our desires, our passions that are misaligned. He talks about how the church has become so much like the world that it seems like there's no difference between the people of God and and the people who are following their own desires or longings. And then he writes in verse 5, or do you suppose it is to no purpose that the Scripture says he yearns jealously over the Spirit that he has made to dwell in us? This is a difficult verse to interpret. Some people look at Spirit there as the human Spirit that God has given to us. Some people think when James is talking about the Spirit, he's talking about the Holy Spirit in us. There's smart people on both sides of the debate, Uh, I think, personally, I lean toward James referring to the Holy Spirit here. I think James is telling the church that the Spirit is jealous for us in such a way that we don't become like everyone else in the world. He's calling us out and he's calling us up. There's good arguments for both. It's not a hill that we die on. But I think James is just simply writing to the church and telling the church the way that you live really does matter. Like your choices matter. Your decisions matter. Your desires matter. Your passions matter as the people of God. Like when you come to Jesus and lay down your life, you submit yourself to His rule and authority in your heart and in your life. And so it matters how we live. So think about this for a second. James, again, clarifies the leaks, the puddles that we find in the kitchen. He says there are fights and there are quarrels among you. There's something that you want, that you long for and you don't have, so you fight with one another. Uh, your, your life is marked by prayerlessness or you ask for the wrong reasons. Those are the puddles. The source of the leak is our desires in us. And then after, uh, after convicting us with the Word, He's going to call us uh, to a particular way of life. Uh, he, he is going to call us to respond a certain way. And, and we're going to look at the response, but we're going to look at it um, next week. Because as I was working my way through this passage, I stumbled across a verse that quite honestly, I just glanced over and I almost missed it. Because I I was so focused on the conviction that James gives to the church and the call that he gives the church, the way that the church should respond, that I almost missed the cure that Jesus or that James gives to the church in verse six. Right? So God's word convicts us, it calls us to move and to act. 
But there's, there's something else that James does here that I don't want us to miss. By the way, I don't know, I don't know if you ever read the Word before and you're convicted, but that's one of the things that God's Word does. Like we read a pat, like I read this and I go, man, is that, like, is that me? Like, is that, like, am, am I, do, do I, do I covet and not have and so I fight? I think James, like, is your, is your, is your life marked by prayerlessness? Are you, so, are you so prideful that you don't beg the God of the universe to move and act? I think, James, what, what are you asking God for? Is it self-focused or is it God-focused? I don't know if you've ever read the Word before, maybe heard the Word preached on a Sunday morning and thought to yourself, like, is he talking to me? Like, did he read my mail? And it's, it's, it's like in the house when you're having a conversation and you say something. Maybe it's something that you want to purchase or something that you want to buy and you get on like Facebook or social media and there's an advertisement for it. And you're going, whoa. Like sometimes God's Word does that. It convicts us, and, and understandably so. Necessarily so. But that, that's what the Word does. And, and then James calls us to move and uh, to act. He's going to call us to, to, to move and to act. He's going to call us to respond and submit and to resist and to draw near and to repent and to lament. But not before uh, he, he gives us a bit of good news. And this is what I don't want you to miss. Look at verse 6. He's just convicted us. He's just said that we love the world. And then he says this. But he gives more grace. Gosh, I love this. But he gives more grace. God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. And that is good news. Like when the when the word convicts you, when the word exposes your heart, when you read the word and think to yourself, and I have been there before, or I'm there right now. God in His kindness meets us with more and more grace. Grace is God's unmerited favor. It's the thing that's so beautiful about a relationship with God, and it's the thing that's so beautiful about Christianity, is it's not built upon or based upon our deeds, the things that we've done. It is based upon the grace of God extending to us what we do not deserve. This is why the writer of Hebrews confidently tells us in Hebrews 4.16, let us approach the throne of grace with confidence so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help us in our time of need. Paul wrote to the church at Rome and says, where sin increased, grace increased all the more. John Blanchard, someone who lived a long time ago, said, for daily need, there is daily grace. For sudden need, there is sudden grace. For overwhelming need, there is overwhelming grace. Uh, John Newton, when he wrote Amazing Grace, a song that we sing, wrote, through many dangers and toils and snares, I have already come, tis grace was brought me safe. 
thus far and grace will lead me home. There is always, there is always, there is always more grace. There's always more grace. An artist once submitted a painting of Niagara Falls for an exhibition, uh, but neglected to give it a title. And so the gallery was in a bit of a predicament. They needed to supply a title uh, for this painting. And so they decided uh, to name it More to Follow. More to follow. I mean, just, just think about the water rushing over Niagara Falls, the, the billions of gallons of water. There's, just, there's always more to follow. It's always more to follow. The Apostle John referred to this reality in John chapter 1, verse 16, when he wrote, For of his fullness we have all received grace upon grace. This is like grace stacked upon grace. Literally, it means a grace instead of grace, or as others have described it, grace following grace, or grace heaped upon grace. That is the offer to you and to me. That's the offer to the people of God. We are convicted by the Word. We're called to move and to act and to live a certain way, but we are not called to live that sort of way without grace meeting us where we are. When it comes to God's grace, There is always more to follow. And so this morning, as God's word convicts you and calls you, my prayer for you is that you would see and experience the beauty of God's grace. Praise the Lord. Uh, There is always more to follow. Would you pray with me? God, we give you thanks this morning uh, for your amazing grace. Your word has convicted us. Your word convicts us. Uh, Lord, you have challenged us as as the people of God to not let our desires, our passions, the things that we long for, be a wedge between relationships amongst the body of Christ. Uh, You have called us out for the times that we want something and we don't have it, and we act like children in response. You've called us to the carpet for living lives where, where we don't pray as we should. We can be so prideful. I can be so prideful and arrogant as to think I can do it on my own. Or Lord, I think about all the times I ask or we ask uh, for things that maybe we have no business asking for. Lord, we acknowledge that and we confess that this morning. And, and, we are grateful that there is grace. There is always more grace to follow. Your grace doesn't run out. Your grace never runs out. There there is always more grace upon grace, gift upon gift. And so this morning we give you thanks. God, we love you. We thank you so much that you loved us first. We pray these things in Jesus' name and by your spirit. Amen.